0: This message comes from Capital One. Your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services backed by the strength of a top 10 commercial bank. Visit CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Member FDIC.
1: We get a lot of feedback about the show from you. Often, those messages critique how we and our guests sound on air. I notice very often the use of, I mean, like, like, I mean, in front of every other sentence. Hearing people say, um, and ah, too often, it just distracts the listener, or distracts me, at least, from
2: what the speaker's trying to communicate. The expression, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? blah, 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 blah. You know what I mean? When people say that over and over again, I just want to leave. Uh, It's very annoying. And there I said, uh. (laughs) ah. Groups
1: with less power, including women, people of color, and the young, develop their own language patterns to distinguish themselves in their community. And eventually, those habits tend to catch on and become normalized. But we've been taught since grade school that there's a right and a wrong way to talk. But who makes those rules and why? We dig into that after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: Let's get into the conversation. Today's guest is a sociolinguist who wants to challenge our assumptions about speech. She says there's much more value, meaning, and history behind our ums, likes, and you means than we likely expect. Valerie Friedland is a professor of linguistics at the University of Nevada, Reno. Her new book is called, Like Literally, Dude, Arguing for the Good and Bad English. Professor Friedland, welcome to 1A. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Well, let's get started with another voicemail. Here's Avril. I like, totally hate when people use the word like totally too much, and totally, and literally. It's very stressful when my teenage daughters say like, and I was doing this like, and I went to this place like, and we ate this like. And I say to them, so did you actually do those things, or did you figuratively do those things. So I'd be interested in the use of like as a filler. Avril, thanks for your message. Okay, there you have it. (laughs) The word like, it's one of the most complained about words in 1A's inbox. And it's the first word in your book title. Why do we use like?
3: I love like. And like was actually really the word that people most brought to my attention in both classes and after public lectures. And they'd say things that always followed, I hate it when. Right. <laughs> and and no one ever says I love like as a filler word, but we really should. And if we think about the history and the purpose of like, I think we might reconsider our hate of like. If you, if you consider the use of like in terms of a filler word, you have to think about what are young people doing with it? Why are they having it so prominently featured in their speech? People don't do things just because they do things because it fills a void. And like actually fills a very important void. The interesting thing about like is it has three different purposes. The problem is a lot of older speakers don't quite get those purposes, so it's harder for us to unpack. And I think in you know, one of your in your little intro there, she said. Is it just like? What does like mean? You know, what is the purpose of like? And that really gets to the heart of the matter. Young people use like to either be a approximator. So that's a one to one substitution with the word about. So that would be when you estimate or approximate something such as he was like 12, I think, when that happened. You could also say about, it's an exact same substitution. An older speaker would say about, a younger speaker would say like. So it's not useless or uncertain. It's identical to what an adult does. They just use a different word. Our dislike there is really about the speakers that use it rather than the feature itself. I think the use that really bothers people is when it's just a filler in the sense of putting it at the beginning of a sentence or sticking it in the middle of the sentence where older speakers don't think it has a purpose and it sounds uncertain. But actually what it does is it helps us, when we use it as a sentence initial particle, display impreciseness or a subjective sensibility over what we're is about to follow. And it usually connects it to the previous sentence. So you might say something such as, I don't really let it bother me. Like, what would be the point where the like there comes in to express a connection with what was said before and a sort of this idea that I'm going to project to you my own stance or belief about something. It's not what someone else is saying. It's not what I'm certain about, but it's what I think or believe or feel. So it's a subjectiveness that it's it's adding to the sentence. We also see it in its most rising use. I think it's the most extensive prevalent use um, nowadays is, as a quotative verb, and that's where it's a one-to-one substitution for the verb to say. Again, not a filler, not extra, one-to-one substitution of another verb that we value and use quite regularly. So it can't be that its use is wrong there. It's that it's a word we don't like there. Um, and that would be when someone says um, something that someone else is saying. So they said he doesn't like to go there versus they were, he was like, I don't like to go there. So again, one-to- one substitution. But why do we use like in that context? Well, think about what it conveys over the verb to say. When I say someone said something, I'm sort of insinuating it was a verbatim quote. When I'm like about what someone said, I'm indicating that this might have been just what I was thinking or how I was processing something during the events I'm describing. So there's actually an additional use for the verb like there, a quoted verb like, over to say. And what we find when we look at how people tell stories, they often use it to switch up perspectives or or speakers in that story. So you might be like and he might be say. So you can tell as as a narrator that you're projecting different roles on those different speakers by switching up the verb. So it's actually pretty impressive, the different usages. It's just that we don't like the speakers it's associated with, which tend to be younger and often female.
1: Why is age so strongly associated with our speaking habits?
3: Well, I think if you think about teenagers, it's not that surprising that they eschew everything in the adult world and try to do different things. Um, you know, nothing that we do as older speakers is going to be cool for younger speakers to do. But it's not just the fact that they want to have an independent identity, and this is the time that they do it. And that comes out in their speech as well. It's also facts about their cognitive processing and their more greater neural connectivity and their ability to, to sort of lay down new neural networks in a way that we're not able to as adults. Also, children can do an incredibly fine-grained analysis of, of linguistic distributions and linguistic patterns that adults lose, which is why we're not as good at picking up languages later in life. Um, and then throw in that, this intense period of social identity formation and this need to be different and nonconformist and also this huge pool of resources and linguistic uh, variables that surround you in high school because you're in contact with more people from different groups with different speech habits than you ever will be. And all of that goes into this giant blender and outcomes novelty, creativity, and innovation that would be a po- impossible in the adult world.
1: Well, we received an email from Sue in Bend, Oregon, who writes, quote, I have been waiting for years to voice my pleas regarding some female announcers who sound like valley girls or chipmunks. <laughs> <laughs> so, and some of the messages we received, people raised their voices higher to, to imitate voices they dislike. What role does gender play in our linguistic critiques?
3: Gender plays a huge role, actually. We don't tend to think of it that way when we're criticizing people for their speech and we're calling out women more than men, typically. We don't think of it as gendered, but if you look at the history of the complaints we've had about language, a lot of the time, new features are associated with women And that's because women do tend to be the linguistic innovators. When you look at the history of language change over time, and I'm not talking about just today, but you can go back to the early modern period, and we find that women were the leaders in changes from verb forms like doth to does, and switches from using um, ye to you. All sorts of changes have been associated with women back in the past, as well as today. And they actually usher in new norms. But in that period, before the new changes that they're bringing into the language become the changes that we all use as part. part of our new norms and we don't remember there ever was a difference what we do is we notice the salience of who's using them more and it's women and so when women are doing something more than other speakers and it's something new and different and we have stereotypes about female speech and female voices which go back to an antiquity about women not belonging to certain spheres like professional spheres educational spheres institutional spheres that all mixes together and these stereotypes we have about women more generally and the fact that they're doing these novel things in their speech make us not like what they're doing in their speech, mainly because it's more salient to us. And a century from now, we'll all be, do, be doing it. But until that happens, mm-hmm. we notice it more in women, and therefore we criticize them.
1: Well, it makes me wonder how gender linguics, linguistics and our per- perception of authority or who holds authority, where those things intersect.
3: Well, they intersect very strongly, particularly in places like institutional contexts, like professional meetings, um, and educational contexts. Because if we have these ideas about where women's voices are most uh, likely to belong, and that's usually in the domestic sphere, and then we hear more traditionally male voices, and that can be lower voice pitch, that can be things like using less um, filler words, people would call them, but really they're called discourse markers. That could be things like using less like in those contexts. Then what we do is associate male forms with being appropriate in those contexts, and maybe even inadvertently judge women negatively in those same contexts for using things that are higher in women's speech. Not because they're more uncertain, not because there's anything inherently or intrinsically incorrect or wrong about them, but simply because that's not what we're accustomed to in those contexts. And a lot of times we will find that it silences women in those contexts. They're afraid to speak out because they don't want to be misconstrued. They don't want to be thought of as aggressive. They don't want to be thought of as soft or weak. So all those things keep them silent, which then inadvertently also affects their roles in those places. Next, we talk about the um,
1: surprising way that um and uh help us talk and listen.
0: This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on.
1: Today, we're talking about how we talk. Valerie Friedland is also a professor of linguistics at the University of Nevada, Reno. One chapter in her new book is all about the surprising value of the much maligned ums and ahs many of us use when we speak. But some of you are skeptical. Here's Marilyn in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. I completely disagree. When I'm hearing a guest using ums and ahs and it's extensive, I just turn the radio off. Well, don't turn the radio off quite yet, Marilyn. Give us a chance to explain. Aaron wrote us this email. The speaker is grossly underestimating the deterioration of the English language by reassigning the meanings of words to fit how younger undereducated people are using them. Things either happen or they don't. There should be no like unless it's a simile. As a college professor, it is painful to witness young people, particularly women, lack the confidence to use their own voice and disheartening when educated people who should know better make room for this to persist. Professor Friedland, how do you respond to that?
3: Well, you know, I think that is ignoring the history of most of these features. It's not young women that invented like. Like has actually been in our speech as a filler word since the 1700s. And that's in literature. We can see it also in trial transcripts at that time. So that means it existed probably a lot longer uh, back than that. Those are simply the recorded examples we have. Uh, And like as a simile is actually not the original use of like, which came into the language around 1200 as a verb. So language has always evolved. We've always not liked it as it's changing from what we know to what is new. And many times, as this, uh, I think, speaker or this um, person suggests, it's because we associate who brings those features into our language with speakers that we we don't like or speakers that are from groups or classes that we don't approve of. And it's stereotypes about those speakers that make us assign those things to the forms they use. But so many things that we think of as appropriate and normal today were actually brought in by those very speakers and became part of our usage today. So the idea of deterioration is a funny one. If we look at the history of English, the changes that have happened in English over the last two, three centuries are far less than the changes that have affected English over the past thousand years. When we used to have case, we had number marking, we had grammatical gender, we had several verb classes, weak verbs and strong verbs, all of which had declensions within them of maybe six or seven types. So all of those endings, all of that complex morphosyntax is gone from English. And yet, We think of what's happening today as bad. If that wasn't bad, I don't know what is. But we have invented air travel. We've invented vaccines. We've gotten the internet. And some may even say TikTok (laughs) as wonderful inventions that we've had since English has changed so drastically. So I think it's born of a cultural belief of the here and now, a cultural moment that we think this is right and that's wrong, rather than looking at the span of English and its development over time. And so—
1: With the understanding that language is is living and it evolves, why do we get so attached to certain ways of speaking?
3: Because we've had a long history of grammarian angst that's been drilled into us since the time we were little. Uh, You know, starting in kindergarten or even before that if we had parents that were grammarians at heart, we've been told there's a right and there's a wrong. And this is the way you do it and this is not the way we do it. And we valorize certain norms and we've discredited others. And when you have that reiterated year after year in every English class, in every grammar class, through high school, through college... You're going to believe it. And it doesn't mean that those are wrong. I want to get it, make it clear that I'm not saying that prescriptivism is never okay if that's really firmly what you believe. But what I'm saying is if you look at history and science, it offers a window into understanding why language changes, how it changes, and how that's actually purposeful and many times will become the norms of the future. We can ignore that that's a reality, but it is the reality. Many things that were despised in the 17 and 1800s have become the way we speak today." Uh, how many of us say shall anymore? That was in the 19th century a must do. Do we say must or do we say I have to? Do we say will or do we say going to? Do we drop our yods in words like do and news or do we say you and use? All of those things in the 18th century were criticized, were reviled, were called vulgar and lazy and careless and yet we are those vulgar, lazy, careless speakers today. So the same people that are rallying against the decline of English today. We're rallying against the decline of English in the 18th century, and yet English has gone on to thrive, but with those features that people hated before. So the things we hate today will be the same thing.
1: You say um and uh are not filler words like many of us think. What value do they have in our speech?
3: Well, they're called filled pauses, which is slightly different than filler words, and we see that they're cognitively different in why they occur, where they occur, and how they function from filler words. So that's why we treat them as a separate category. But what's really interesting is they are a perfect example of these social preferences we have that strongly influence our perception of people that use these features compared to the psychological and cognitive benefits that cause those features to emerge in our speech. So we have a complete mismatch here between social benefits and linguistic benefits, but filled pauses have arisen because they are flags of cognitive processing. And when we think of them as hesitation markers or speech planning markers, that is pretty much what they are for speakers. They occur before more complex syntactic structures that we're building with our minds, which is why we often use them at the beginning of a sentence, because our brain is actually constructing those syntactic structures. And the more complex the syntactic structure that we're building, the more likely we are to, uh, or um. Likewise, when we say abstract, more difficult, less common, or less familiar words, we are also more likely to uh or um. So for a speaker, it actually serves the purpose of allowing them to do that cognitive retrieval and signal to the listener, I'm not done, right? So they also have a communicative import. If I just took a silent pause, which is what we often hear people tell us to do, that can be misconstrued as what linguists call a turn transition cue, which means I might be turning the floor over to you. So that would suggest I can start speaking. But when I uh or I um, it's actually a signal to the listener, hey, wait, buddy, back off. Don't take my turn. I'm still working on it. What's really fascinating is that uh and um seem to function differently in this way because otherwise it's a bit weird that we have synonyms for our filled pauses. I mean, why do we really need two? But what we found is when we study what happens after the filled pause, we find that uh seems to signal a short delay for the listener that the speaker will continue in just a minute, whereas um seems to signal that the speaker needs a bit longer. So a longer delay is signaled to the listener. And from a listener's perspective, they don't just tell me about the delay. They also seem to flag for me when new information or unpredictable information is coming up. And not only that, They help me process it more efficiently, process it more quickly. And when we do studies where we do a pop quiz about an hour after we've told people words, and some of them we did an uh before and other ones we didn't, we find that the ones that had uh before them were remembered better later. So it also seems to help us with recall. All pretty good things for something that we generally hate.
1: I want to go back to our voicemail box.
3: I am June from Florida. I've been a member of Toastmasters International for 10 years plus.
1: That's an international speaking organization in 122 countries. It has a speaking format where a grammarian and our counter keeps track and reports on crutch words and pause fillers like ers, ahs, mm, that we use while we're speaking. The point is to pause, think of the next thought, then begin to speak instead of filling it with gibberish. I am a distinguished Toastmaster, which is the highest level of the Toastmaster International
0: Organization.
1: June, thanks for that message. I I just want to mention here I had a bit of a light bulb moment as you were talking about how we use um and uh. And that's in this environment of live radio, (laughs) where people are often not in studio with me. I may not even have line of sight with them. Those long pauses. For us, say, the line dropped. It means you are no longer there. And so as as a host, that um or that ah means you are still with me. (laughs) You haven't dropped the line and that there is more coming. So it's useful in this setting. And I hadn't really connected those dots for myself yet. But how would you respond to June's message?
3: Well, (laughs) definitely people do feel strongly that they are not good and distracting features of speech. But I think we have to separate here what she's talking about, which is a public speaking context versus everyday speech where we're having conversations. And I think that's where a lot of people get hung up on this idea of what's right and what's wrong. There are certain contexts, very formal speaking contexts, public speaking, presentations, where we expect expect that the speaker has practice, that they know their material, that they are not going to pause because they're familiar and comfortable with what they're going to say. And so when when giving a presentation, when someone does a lot of um umming or uh uhing, what it can signal to a listener is... You haven't really prepared because I know that uh and um are signals of speech planning. And when I expect you to have done your speech planning in advance, maybe it's reasonable to expect that there'll be fewer ums and uhs. So I think we have to understand context is key here. But when I'm having a conversation with you or we're speaking over the radio in an unplanned context like this one, having a moment to speech plan is actually a really good thing to do as both a speaker and for a listener and for the benefit of our conversation. So I think we have to separate out those contexts where it might be appropriate that we see it as distracting in a public speaking context, but less so in a conversation.
1: Now, Professor Friedland, we're talking about the English language, but when we talk about ah and um, that's not specific to English that's present in other languages as well. What's an example outside of the English language?
3: Yes, filled pauses appear to be universal. Um, And what's actually fascinating is it's not just universal to have one. It seems universally languages have at least two. Uh, English and most Germanic languages share the same kinds of filled pauses. So, uh and um are most prominent in English. Um, They also tend to be what we find in Dutch and German, although slightly different vowels, more German-sounding vowels. But in um, Japanese, for example, we'll have eto and ano are two of the possible Japanese fillers. And in Chinese, the most common filled pauses are A and N. So instead of um, it's N. What's really fascinating is in British English, a lot of times people say er, and um, but actually that's a misspeech, a miss, uh, sorry, a misspeaking on the basis of writing. So, you know, you can see British pauses in books written E-R, but British English is rless less post-vocalically, so that actually is a, just like English, a or uh, not er. <laughs> so British, actually, British speakers tend to find it very amusing that Americans t- think they say er all the time, but they don't. It's just uh and um as well. I have to share with you that this conversation is very polarizing
1: <laughs> among our <laughs> listeners. We are getting um, strong pushback about your your arguments about language and why... So-called proper English is important, and we're seeing many of the same age divides that we talked about earlier. I, I, I'm wondering still about that attachment piece, and and why we are attached to certain ways of speaking. What does it tell us about other people, and what does it tell us about ourselves if we consider ourselves a proper speaker?
3: You know, I think it's really interesting how polarizing something like this can be. But you think about it, it's a relatively simple thing, right? We speak differently, that's okay, no problem. But that is absolutely not how people feel. And as a linguist, I study the structure of language and why they change over time, how they change, what the underlying pressures on language always are, and how when those meet social triggers, they actually enact language change. And that's what's given us English after all, right? We're not German speakers because of language change. Like this, So it's so funny to me how people get so upset about the idea of language change and, and think of it as decay. But it's also not surprising because language is both intensely personal and also a community-based collective agreement about the meaning of words and their uses. And so if you have something that means a lot to me that is part of my identity and then someone else is changing it in a way that isn't what I've agreed to, isn't part of my collective understanding of the meaning of of the way language should be, that's painful to me, while it might be beneficial to them. So I think that's what we don't see is that this collective nature of language makes it constantly this push and pull between change and not change, between new meaning and old meaning, between opinions and facts. And this idea of there being a right or a wrong is really a figment of our prescriptivist imagination starting in about the 18th century, and it's what's given rise to what's been called the complaint tradition, which is what you're seeing come through in a lot of your callers or a lot of the emails that, I don't like this, it doesn't seem useless, it seems useless to me, it's uncertain, it's, you know, insignificant, it's change, I don't, I I think it's decay. Well, in the 18th century, we started to first write the rules of English, which historically had been a colloquial language. English wasn't a learned language, it wasn't a classic language. Up until about 1700, it was really the language of the people, uh, which is why it changed rapidly. But around the 18th century, the upper class started to document, standardize, and codify their norms because there was a loosening of class boundaries and language was one of the last ways the aristocracy could maintain their their differences. And this is what has become the foundation of grammar rules today. The 18th century class-based norms, that have been written down and codified to keep the upper class separate from the and class. And so really these ideas we have stem from that and it's once we've set them down and we decide that, okay, here are rules we're supposed to follow, breaking them feels wrong. And so I'm not surprised that people find it problematic.
1: We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment.
2: Support for NPR and the following message come from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org.
0: This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone.
1: Now, let's get back to Professor Valerie Friedland. She teaches linguistics at the University of Nevada, Reno. Her new book is called Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. We got this email from Christina who says, Language rules have historically been maintained and enforced by the class in power, white upper class. How can we redistribute that power over language? Can we decolonize it? Uh, Professor Friedland, we, we haven't talked about where this conversation intersects with Race, so let's touch on that first and then get to Christina's question.
3: Okay, certainly. I think it's race and class and gender, all of those things combined, and also ageism. The the reality is a lot of the features that we end up speaking with later in life or as we evolve through history have been the features that started in the groups that we tend not to like, or we have stereotypes. They're disfavored social groups. The reason that language change is born in those groups is because the higher class tends to be more guarded and self-regulatory about their language. And that doesn't mean they're more correct in any kind of correctness, um, objectively, that just means that they uh, are more careful not to let natural underlying uh, processes like assimilation, like analogy, like leveling that happen all the time in language and also affect upper class speech, but just more slowly, those are not allowed to progress because they have more to lose by giving up the norms that they've established as the group in power, as the dominant group. When you don't have that much to lose, you use language for different purposes. You're not using it for sort of power and authority to the same degree. You're using it for connection. You're using it for network. You're using it for solidarity and intimacy. Um, You're talking about things that require emotionality and they require emphaticness um, and subjectivity. And that's where language blooms and blossoms and new forms come in because you allow the natural inherent linguistic tendencies that have happened throughout history in all languages, Um, things like sound changes or sound assimilation when you say things in fast speech, in connected speech, or things like not keeping distinctions that are no longer useful in your language, like case in English, which has gone the way of the dodo and is dying a slow death for um, pronouns as well because we don't use case anymore. Those things are leveled over time. Those happen in groups that don't have as much to lose from a social and power standpoint, by allowing those things to happen. And because those are not the groups in power, and because they often pose a threat to those in power, to the status quo, we tend to dislike and stereotype the forms that become associated with their speech. But yet the funny thing is those forms creep in anyway over time because they are the language of everyday life, they are the language that we have among us ourselves as friends, as partners, as lovers. And intimacy and language go together hand in hand, and we get used to using them in our daily lives, and then they creep into these other contexts and become the norms of our future. A great example of that is progressive, which used to be disliked, but now we use them all the time, and that's because of the language of intimacy. One of the things I'm, I'm
1: hearing you, you say, or at least sort of refer to, is... Something called code switching, where you may speak one way with people you trust and have relationship with, but then when you're in a different setting, in a public setting, you may speak a different way. Where does that come into play?
3: Sure. Linguists refer to that um, not as code switching so much as a a repertoire, working within your linguistic repertoire. And we usually use code switching to mean switching between languages. But it's the same idea. And we all have a linguistic repertoire that we use. It doesn't matter how formal a speaker we are, how standard a speaker we are, or how non-standard a speaker we are. Everybody has a range between the language they use with their kids and their loved ones and the language they use at the office with the boss. You know, that's the idea, that you have a very formal end of that range and a much more informal. And for some of us, that range is more narrow because those norms are closer together. And a lot of the people that are writing in, that's the case for them, that they have these standard ranges and they, they vary much less, but they still say things like walk in and talk in and gotcha on occasion. They don't, Speak with this highly formal speech all the time. It's just impossible. But for speakers that are non-standard speakers or speakers that have other pressures on them, women, for example, younger speakers, that repertoire is actually larger because they have to do more switching from one side to the next, Um, and that plays a big role because all of us use the lower end of our continuum—the more informal, in a more casual, more intimate continuum more often than we use the more formal ones. So the forms that we use in that context will end up becoming more widespread over time. As long as they're not too deeply tied to intimacy and connect and sort of casual speech, we
1: got this email from Alan, who says your very generous speaker, like many linguists of whom I am one, is disallowing an important distinction, di- distinction rather between use and overuse. It is when like or any other word or phrase is sprinkled throughout a person's discourse repeatedly that it becomes problematic. I recently counted more than three hundred sort of's from a single NPR guest speaker inside of a single. 45-minute segment. I'd love to hear you respond to that, Professor Friedland, but I'd also just, <laughs> as someone who's, who's worked in, in this business for, uh, gosh, I don't even know how long. It's been close, 25 years, I think, at least at this point. Live radio is hard. It is hard to have a 45-minute conversation in real time it's hard. I just I I don't know how many times I have to I say that to people. It's it's if you're on the other side of this microphone it's Lyft, y'all. I'm just being honest. with Professor Freeland, please, please go ahead.
3: <laughs> well, first of all, I'm really curious to see what my stats will be tomorrow <laughs> for anybody out there counting my speech features. Uh, but, you know, that, that, that is something completely different. I think, you know, in my book and in my work, what I'm looking at is the history and the evolution and the underlying linguistic structure of language. So that's, that's different than whether we like how much someone uses something. Um, you know, so I can I, I think ice cream is great. If I eat it every day, it's all it's it's not good for me. <laughs> you know, I think that doesn't mean we can't talk about ice cream being a food group, right? Because it can be overused. So yes, there are certainly people that lean on certain features more than any, and that can be a problematic, no matter whether it's too formal of features, we've all met that person that does this really formal kind of style of speaking that feels a little off-putting and uncomfortable and not very sociable, to the person that tends to use like or um so much that it's distracting. But that's not the same thing as what we think about those features themselves. That's not the same thing as what brought us those features and why we use them and what their purpose is. You know, so certainly there are some Speakers that might overuse certain features to the point where it's distracting to listeners, and then that's an issue. But what I'm referring to in my book is why we have evolved these features in the first place, why they're useful, why they're purposeful, and why they very well might be the norms of the next generation. Let's go
1: back to our voicemail box. I notice and I'm driven nuts by what I believe is called glottal fry, where people end every sentence like this. And it just drives me insane. Uh, I don't know why, but my ears can't stand it. What are the physical mechanics of glottal fry or or vocal fry?
3: Okay, yes. Vocal fry, creaky voice, glottal fry, they're all the same thing. And essentially, it's where you bunch up or thicken the vocal folds um, so that as you drop to a lower pitch, the vocal folds vibrate irregularly and sort of bring in this popping or creaky noise at the end, usually at the end of a sentence. And it's used to for stylistic purpose most of the time.
1: Now you write in your book about this American life in the podcast, 99% Invisible. They both get a high volume of listener feedback about vocal fry. What did you learn?
3: You know, I think what's really interesting is the role that broadcast journalism has had in um, sort of making us dislike vocal fry. Uh, We find when we look at studies of vocal fry, if we look at the very early studies, and most of those were done in Britain, vocal fry was actually majority associated with male speech. So it was actually so much so that it was termed a hyper-masculine feature in a 1988 study called Creek as a Sociolinguistic Marker. But then fast forward to the 1980s, And we started to notice, especially around 2000, these comments on vocal fry as the vocal tick of doom, a lot of times associated with news speech. And so some phoneticians did a study where they looked at the rate of vocal fry in broadcast news and found that female newscasters used it at a higher rate than male newscasters. And then in a study about 10 years later, a similar study was done finding the same pattern, but they didn't find that pattern in general speech. So men and women on average didn't do that, but broadcasters did. So this tells us that, first of all, fe- women in broadcast news are feeling pressure to change their voices um, and make them lower, probably for professional authority, um, because typically they've been criticized for high and shrill voices, but also that perhaps the prevalence of vocal fry in broad- broadcasting has made us think of it as a vocal tick of doom more generally for women, even though the difference in young men and young women in terms of vocal fry is not as large as we might believe.
1: What do these rules around grammar, how we speak, pitch, tone, what does it mean for who gets access to certain spaces? So on our show, We uh, have something we call Nothing About Us Without Us, which is where if we're talking about a certain community, we want that community to be part of the conversation. But that means that we sometimes have people on the air who aren't academics. They are not media trained. They're people who are affected by an issue. So if we have these rules around how people are supposed to sound, what does that mean for who gets access to certain spaces?
3: Well, it's uh, sort of basically acts as a doorway that has gatekeepers that speak standard English and speak English in a certain way. I mean, a lot of women speak standard English, but they're still held back because we're not given access to the speech features that are considered dominant and authoritative and have uh, leadership potential and therefore inadvertently women get left out of those positions more often than men. And same thing with ethnic groups. When ethnic groups use dialects that are dispreferred socially, that often acts as a gatekeeper from access to jobs that value mainly standard English and um, traditional forms of speech. So it's, it's pretty Im- imposing for those that are trying to break through those areas if they have grown up with a different Dialect or a different speech norm than others in the positions they're hoping to aspire to. So it's, it's a gatekeeper for, for absolute certain. What got you started on this line of study? Well, I've, I've always been interested in language. My parents were non-native speakers of English. They spoke French. And so growing up in the South with French-speaking parents, I noticed how people responded to them. Uh, because of the way they talk. So this kind of piqued my interest. So when I went to college at Georgetown University, I studied linguistics. And um, some of the rules and patterns that I'd always believed in as a a young woman growing up in in a sort of traditional school, it sort of rocked my world how they had come to be and what the underlying reason we believed in them was. Um, Also, just sort of when you look at the structure of language, it's pretty powerful and impactful when you really understand how language works. And it's usually not the way we think it is. And how this sets us up in life to either be powerful or powerless, to either be believed or not believed, to be credible, to be not credible, to be trustworthy, not trustworthy. Language impacts us in so many deep ways. And as you can see from the people writing in, um, it's it's very prevalent, these attitudes towards language. So when I became a linguist and I started to do research for academics, I would find that people constantly asked me when they weren't academics about things like like, about vocal fry, about all these features that were populating the everyday speech around them that concerned them. And I thought they don't really have the tools that I have as a linguist to understand the history and and evolution of language more generally and see how they fit in. So this idea for writing this book was percolating for years, uh, mainly so I didn't have to keep re-explaining the same things. (laughs) Save myself that trouble. Uh, I just had to put down why we use like one time in a chapter and then that solved it. But basically because I thought people deserve to know what linguists know, um, but we don't tend to transmit outside of linguistic circles very often.
1: Yeah, ahead of today's show, we asked our audience what they noticed about other people's speech, and every message we got was something they didn't like. So I'm curious to hear from you, Professor Friedland, what's a development in the English language you're hearing or in the way we speak that, that you like or an evolution you're starting to sense coming?
3: Well, you know, one thing I really love is I'm a sociophonetician socio-phone- by training, which means I really study how speech sounds and social life interact. And one thing that I love are some of the vowel changes that are coming to our language. And what I love about those is they're creeping in without us noticing them. So most people don't walk around and say, oh, my gosh, I hate that vowel change. Right? We notice things like words, like like and vocal fry, that sort of undercurrent of all our speech. But we don't notice things like vowels. So let me just do a little test with you. Uh, so I'm going to spell two words, and I want you to say them. First word, is, and I want you to just wait and say them both together. C-O-T. Okay. And then C-A-U-G-H-T. C-O-T, cot, and caught. Okay. And so when you say them together, say them just quickly together one more time. C-O-T, caught. Okay. You can hear a difference in your vowels. Well, that's actually a big change sweeping through much of the country where people no longer make a difference between those vowels. It's called the cot-cot merger. I, for one, have that merger. The majority of the Western United States has it, and it's rapidly expanding eastward. It's also true of all of Canadian speech. All Canadians tend to have the cot-cot merger. And it's not just in those two words. It's in every word with those vowels. But that's something where we're getting fewer things, fewer distinctions, and yet no one notices them or thinks they're bad. And I love it. I think the cot-cot merger is fabulous.
1: That's Professor Valerie Friedland. She teaches linguistics at the University of Nevada, Reno. Her new book is called Like Literally, Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. Professor, thank you. Today's producer was Avery Jessa Chapnick. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening and we'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it.